Yeah, even on the, his last morning, he he warms Benji's hand. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he's always trying to warm everybody's hands. And that's one way that he suggested he might come back, uh, that we would know that he was watching us as if our hands were warm. I'm truly honored and privileged to welcome both of you to the podcast today. Rabbi Rachel Timoner, I've known you, now we know, seven years, which is just crazy. Of course, I'm pleased to say that you, Rabbi Timoner, are a board member of Plaza Jewish Community Chapel. Rabbi Timoner is also the senior rabbi at Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope. It is true. And alongside you on my screen is your sister, Andi Timoner, who I'm meeting for the first time. It's a privilege. You are coming to us from L.A. We're going to talk about Last Flight Home, a documentary that truly takes the viewer on a breathtaking journey that is personal, that is intimate. It premiered at Sundance, right? In March of 2022, was it? January. January, like I said, thank you, January of 2022. I know that's a place, Andy, where you have spent a great deal of time as you have won awards for past projects there. The film really champions the conversation around death with dignity. And that's something we don't talk about a lot. Your dad, Eli, he died at the age of 92. Mm -hmm. He was partially paralyzed for 40 years as the result of a stroke. So as I look at Last Flight Home, I, I see that it documents perhaps one of the most emotionally raw and personal family journeys that anybody could possibly imagine. So tell me, why did you make this film? I actually didn't intend to make a film when I set up cameras. Dad was in the hospital and he was very, very desperate to find out what was going to happen to him. He sort of saw the writing on the wall, I think, that he was going to have to go to a facility and that he wasn't going to be able to use what little mobility he had. Mm -hmm. And so he was really a person who needed to have some modicum of independence and not be 100% burdened. And he made a very courageous and I would say absolute decision that he needed to die. And we didn't even know if it was legal here to do that. Like when he wasn't like he knew about the end of life option act in California or anything like that. Thank God it was. Our brother really spearheaded that part of finding a hospice that would, would do it. Um, Faith and hope hospice in Pasadena. I've been a filmmaker for 30 years. Part of why I am a filmmaker is because, and I think Rachel shares this. We we don't have a great memory, like our memory of like long-term events is just both of us is kind of not as good. I think we both live in the present very much and maybe mm-hmm. a little in the future. Yeah. So she's nodding. I was terrified that I would forget his inimitable personality, his voice, his humor. Right. And I, I just put cameras up to try to preserve what I could uh, and almost bottle him up and keep him alive somehow in the camera. And I even went and saw a therapist because I was worried that I would be mediating my family members experience that maybe I was trying to hide behind something. So yeah, there was no intention to make a film at first. And then what happened was so profound. And so it seems so important and seems like something that we as a society don't really talk about or look at very openly. I had everybody's blessing to sort of proceed. 
Right. So at any point, did anyone say, no, I don't want us to be doing this? Well, Rachel is uncomfortable with cameras to begin with. So we knew that I knew that I needed to ask her before she came to California so that we could really flesh that out because this is obviously all of us losing our, our father. I think, Rachel, you came like five, six days before. I had that gap of like two weeks to kind of help get the cameras to disappear, figure out where the best angles were and and have it be this system where the batteries were just changing. And half the time they might be filming nothing. Like I really wasn't paying attention to the cameras either. Interesting. Yeah. Rachel, did you have uh, clearly trepidation about doing this or- I mean, Andy films everything all the time. Like she's saying, she she wants to capture things, and she and so it's often a, an area of dispute for us. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be filmed, and yet I understood that my dad was good with it. Everybody else was good with it, and mm-hmm. you know I wasn't going to get in the way of it. Then when I realized that it was going to be a film, film like it was going to be something that would be shared with others, right? I really didn't want that to happen, and it, it was really hard for me because it just felt so private and intimate and ours. But then again, with that, I saw the impact it was having on people. I saw, first of all, the impact it had on our mom, which was that it was the most important aspect to her healing after my dad's death. And it's incredibly healing for her. And I saw the impact that it had on everybody who watched it. And I saw that it could do great good in the world. And so I put down my resistance and got on board (laughs) with the plan. So the camera became almost like another person in the room. I mean, simply a presence. So that did not inhibit anybody from what was going on. Everybody just got used to it. My feeling was, as I think the person who was the, had the hardest time was given that this was going to happen, I had to proceed as if it was not happening. Mm-hmm. I acted like there was no camera. I made myself do everything as if no one was watching because- right. Because our dad was dying. And that to me, that was the most important thing is that if, if the cameras were going to interfere with our moments, with our dad, our last moments, then that was a problem. So I had to, I think we all had to just like act like they weren't there. And I think we did. Right. We acted like yeah. they weren't there. And we proceeded as if it was just us around his bed having this moment intimately. And I generally did forget about them. That's how it came across to the viewer, certainly for me. You know, Rachel, just following up, you alluded in the film to wearing two hats, right? Mm-hmm. You talked about being the rabbi and the daughter and mm-hmm. and you voiced concern about how you would navigate those two roles. And I'm curious to know, as you look back, do you feel that you navigated those well? What was your takeaway from that? Well, one of the things that happened for me once the film became public was um, having to face the fact that not only was it really private and intimate, but also it was something that violates Jewish law. And I'm Mm -hmm. a rabbi. And it really made me have to reflect upon like, if nobody else was going to judge this, how do I feel I did just being with my dad as a rabbi and as his daughter? I do feel very clear that I was, thank God, I was able to be with him in the ways he needed. And I was able to, to be able to do what he needed me to do for him and to honor him as his daughter and to serve him as his rabbi. And I do feel like I I gave it my very best and I I feel good about it. And so, you know, whatever judgment comes or, you know, whatever people might think about what I did, I know that for myself with my father and for myself as a rabbi, I feel good about the way that I, that I was there for him. 
It was incredibly beautiful. Uh, as somebody who watched this, I felt that you were there both as a daughter and certainly as a spiritual guide for your dad. And that was incredibly beautiful. You know, Andy, I just want to get back to the creating of the mood with, you know, the lighting, with everything. Because I have to say, on one hand, it was like a very raw home movie, right? It was real. It wasn't, you know, glitzy. It was very basic. Did you think about those things as you were talking about earlier, setting up the cameras and the lights? and Or was that you just wanted to get enough light on people and kept it real simple? For me, again, I was so concerned with my father and his transition, my mother and her denial that she was struggling to even wrap her head around that he was going to be gone. And mm -hmm. Rachel, and if she was going to be comfortable. And I have a screenplay I wrote about dad and about mm -hmm. his airline. And I had people had asked me for years, are you going to make a documentary about your father? Uh, because his story is extraordinary. Yep. And I said, well, I don't have any archival footage. I have like 15 to 20 minutes max of any footage. So I can't really make a documentary. I'm going to write a script, I'm going to make a scripted film. So I've written the scripted film. And one of the other reasons I set up cameras was because I wanted to read it aloud to him one last time and get his oh, take on it. Of course, sure. none of that's in the documentary. So I was concerned about a million other things and really, truly not thinking, oh, this would make a great movie. Mm -hmm. But I, of course, I'm not going to have things look bad. So I, right. I, at night, it would get really bad because there was just one light by his bed and then everybody would be backlit. So I did this one thing where I put a light and bounced it off the ceiling, but no one would even, Rachel, I bet, didn't even notice that. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like totally, it was more about having those cameras not be there. And for me also, I would just literally editing the film, saw so much footage where we weren't filming anything or people had left the frame or daddy's just lying there sleeping, right. you know, which served, I think, the story very well. And it was important. The film was not number one in my mind. So it is a lot like a home movie, but I like that. I, I mean, I like films that kind of are verite and capture authenticity. It also allows us to relate to it as a person, as just a regular person, which is why I think it touched me all the more. I think it's also probably hard for anybody to imagine what it's like to live in a family where cameras are always rolling. Like, Andy films everything all the time, and most of it just, she just keeps thousands of hours of footage just for her own, I don't know why, but she does. <laughs> and so it actually was quite possible for us to act like no one was watching, because I, I didn't, it did not occur to me that this was ever going to see the light of day. I just thought... She was doing her thing where she just kind of like storehouses lots and lots of footage. And so, okay, if that had gotten in the way, it would just would have been really different. It would have been just yeah. a totally different. It, and to me, what was essential was that nothing interrupt or interfere with our experience with our father in his last days. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it, I really don't think it did. And, and a part that I didn't use is that he, he told me, I said, dad, you know, I can't believe that you just never tell me to turn the camera off, like no matter what's happening. And he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. So I wonder oh. if dad, dad knew, but none of us, that this story might see the light of day. I don't know. Hmm. But in a lot of ways, I feel like it was his final gift to the world and to us as a family and to mom, because allowing this to happen has provided a document. She gets to spend time with him. 
you know, it was her birthday the yeah. other day and her 84th birthday. And she spent the night watching the movie. Oh, yeah. That's so beautiful. And what's interesting also is that as the viewer, I felt he was comfortable. He was comfortable mm-hmm. with, he knew what was going on. I mean, he talked about it. And I love this. You talk about the luxury of the moment, knowing that the end of life is coming. Yeah. How often do we hear about or experience traumatic deaths where we don't have that moment, that luxury? You know, it was incredibly profound when his friends would come on and certainly with the kids and the family. I'm curious to know what would have happened if he had died earlier than the 15th day. We did have a call about that. Uh, Do you remember this, Rachel? Early on with you, because we were worried about Rachel getting there in time. Mm. And Candace, the incredible hospice nurse, advised Rachel, you know, that you just never know, but Mm -hmm. it could happen. He had a sense of like, he was going to hang on to the day he decided to be there for. I checked in with him a lot of times and he was very clear, like, oh, I'm not yeah, he didn't. He did not feel himself to be at the edge of dying. Of course, none of us know, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of experience being with people at the end of life, and mm-hmm. I do think we were just incredibly lucky that that he was completely cogent, completely, completely with it, so emotionally available, so present with us, not suffering, not in pain. It was such a gift to have that time. I almost feel like he was in control of that. Mm-hmm. He was working to make that happen Mm -hmm. because he was part of this decision. You know, this was what his choice was. Clearly, family dynamics, and we saw a lot of family dynamics on the screen (laughs) between you, you're one, well, you're two of three siblings. I also am one of three siblings. So I know those dynamics as well. And all of the kids. I'm curious to know the complex moments. Were they challenging for you or was it just part of what happens in the course of a day in your family? I, in editing the film, saw a really great parallel between the T-team that formed when dad had the stroke and the team that formed for this period of time. It was like Mm -hmm. 40 years later and we're all now adults and we have each one of us a gift we can bring, an offering we can, you know, Rachel's a rabbi. I'm a filmmaker. I'm also an independent filmmaker who can cancel my entire calendar and be like, I'm going to just be there with that. And then David, who brings in so much care and physical help and nutrients. And I mean, it was just all of us. Financial, financial. Financial, helping guide the finances. Like each one of us has a lot of love to give that they, that our parents put in us, you know, that we shared as a family. We got really close because of the adversity that we faced as a family and how, how our parents positioned it, I think, for us back then. It was traumatic and I think it impacted all of our lives and that's a whole other podcast, but mm-hmm. it was like we came right back into the T-team and I don't remember a single moment of friction between Rachel and myself or David and myself or Rachel and David at Mm -hmm. all through this entire process. It was about mom and dad, and it was about helping each other and all of us get through this, I think. Mm -hmm. And that was just, that's, I think one of the great lessons of the film or one of the great things that people say to me, they get out of the film 
is trying to come, you know, people, families can splinter during these times. And it's really heartening for people to see a family come together in this way. But it's naturally, I think, what happened from the, the journey that had preceded it, you know? Absolutely. Tell me, was your dad a spiritual guy? No, no. <laughs> so this is fascinating. He was not at all a spiritual guy. He was a businessman. He cared very much about Jewish peoplehood. He spent a lot of time raising money for Israel in its early years. The social justice piece. Social justice was very natural to him. Spirituality, no. We were members of a Reformed synagogue and we all became B'nai Mitzvah because it's like what you do as a Jew, but not because our parents were very interested in spirituality or God or mm -hmm. prayer or religion. And when I decided to become a rabbi, he didn't think it was a good idea. He didn't he didn't want me to become a rabbi and he, he thought I should instead be an ethics professor, which is really wow. different. <laughs> but in the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years of his life, you know, I was leading services in LA for a lot of those years and he was coming to right. things and he you could see him kind of melting into it a little bit and and remembering his parents and their love of Judaism and, and their spiritual ways. And as his life came toward its end, he started to be very, very clear that he was going to see his parents. He had another daughter from a previous marriage that who has died, that he mm -hmm. was going to see them. Wow. That he was going to be there. His soul was going to live on. He was going to be watching us. He was going to be looking down on us and watching us and protecting us and loving us and blessing us. He was completely certain about it. And that surprised me a lot. Oh, that's so, that's so beautiful. And so telling about what can happen at the end of a life. You know, at Plaza, a part of our mission, and, and Rachel, you know this so well, is to elevate end-of-life conversation, and we really recommend doing it with multi-generational conversations. And so to see the grandchildren experience this in such a profound way, and look, we know this, that without a doubt, when somebody dies in our life, a heart stops beating of somebody we know and love, the energy of our life changes. And those kids experience something that will define them mm -hmm. as they move through life in some way. Mm -hmm. So how are the kids? What, what was their takeaway from this? I think that each one of them had so much respect for dad, for Eli, for their grandfather. He was always a role model. You know, the movie is as much about how to live, I think, as how to die because dad was so selfless in his way of surviving, actually being paralyzed, he didn't complain. And Rachel just said he wasn't in pain at the end of his life. We found these bed sores when we went to clean mm -hmm. his body. Yes. You know, like he was yeah. in pain, but he would never complain because he was so busy wondering how Rachel was or wondering when my flight came in or, you know. Yeah. And I think that's how he got through and stayed positive was shining a light on everyone else. And so I think each grandchild felt so seen by him. And yes. so accepted by him and loved by him. And so yeah. I thought it was incredibly beautiful to see him pass along this wisdom to them at the end. I think uh, Rachel's son, Aton, is, is probably the most remarkable of, of those scenes, you know, in terms right. of his question to dad, which I'll let Rachel talk about. You're totally right, Andy. He kept being worried that my hands were cold. Dad, <laughs> he's like in the last days of his life and he's like holding my hand and saying, your hand's so cold you know, which, right, he had bed sores on his body. He was not, he was not thinking about himself. He was thinking about us. 
what I love about the movie that you made, Andy, is that it is it is about dying, but it's really mostly about living and about what we mm-hmm. want our lives to be about and about what matters in life. Yes. And yes, so Eitan asked him, my son asked him, Pop-Pop, they called him Pop-Pop, Pop-Pop, right. do you have advice for me about how to live? And my dad, he wasn't even sure what the question was because it was it's such a big question, you know? And then he <laughs> asked it again. Our dad said, respect the people you don't know and love the people you do. Mm. And then Eitan, you see just Eitan just like kind of collapse onto him, like, like, like into tears, like that it just moved him so much. And then our dad says, did I disappoint you with my answer? And he says, no, Pop, no. And it's so moving. Like he just, you can just see he's like absorbing it so completely, the wisdom of his grandfather and like wanting to model himself after his grandfather so much. And there were just so many beautiful moments like that, that just so powerful. Yeah. Even on the, his last morning, he, he warms Benji's hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he's always trying to warm everybody's hands and, that's one way that he suggested he might come back, uh, that we would know that he was watching us as if our hands were warm. So tell me, now that you've experienced this death with dignity process in clearly the most intimate way possible, as a matter of public policy and clinical practice, and you as a rabbi, what what do you take away with that? So this was hard for me because it, I had to take a public stand. But what happened in that process, it, it became so clear to me that everybody should have this choice. There may be Jews who decide not to pursue this because it does violate Jewish law. And there may be that we it's time for us as a community. I think it's time for us as a community to, to ask that question of whether really it should be in all the movements of Judaism, whether whether it's time for us to make it an option for people who are clearly at the end of life and would like to make this choice. But I feel that everybody should make this choice. And as I went public with it, I expected all kinds of people judging what I was doing. Instead, it was it was hundreds of people telling me about their loved ones who died and didn't have this choice and should have had this choice and suffered immensely and were ready to go and wanted to go. And what was the point of those extra weeks, months, years of suffering when they they were done and they wanted to go and they didn't get to die in dignity because they didn't have this choice. I have become more convinced already that this is something that I want to fight for in you know the state legislatures and wherever this is being considered, because I do think that people deserve to have, be able to make this choice at the end of their lives. Yeah. Andy? You know, I didn't intend for this to be a political film. We decided even before dad died that we should at least make a short film to support death with dignity for terminally ill patients, because- it was so clear how important it was to dad and and how beautiful it was as a process to be able to have some agency at the end of your life after living a life where you've had very little in dad's case. But for any terminally ill patient, they're obviously not making that choice, right? So they can at right. least make a choice as to when they go and, and what it should look like. You know, it's it's only a right, I think in 10 or 11 states in the United States, right now. And it feels really archaic that that's the case. Like it seems like it really needs to change. And so anyway, I made this film because I was sort of mourning by editing and dad was alive inside the Avid and it was suddenly there was a film within six months. And as soon as word got out, 
death with dignity and also compassion and choices. Mm -hmm. And these national organizations got in touch. And so we're totally going to work with them and make the film available to try to flip the law in as many places as possible, because I think dad would really love that as a legacy as well, to be able to take help a lot of patients avoid a, a lot of pain, unnecessary pain and suffering. Yes. And we know that having control at the end of life. Yes is one of the greatest gifts we can give people. Yes, because right, that's the ultimate feeling of powerlessness. We are all going to die and it's not in our hands. And that's generally just how it is. But if you know that you're going to die for sure and you have the ability to make some choice in the when and the how, that is a gift to give to people. And I do not think, I mean, the, the point of Jewish law is honoring life. We don't want to devalue life in any way, but this is actually a way of honoring life. Yes, as these laws are contemplated, we need to be incredibly aware and sensitive to the issues around people with disabilities, because Mm -hmm. it must never be that these laws devalue life or decide which lives are valuable and which are not, or decide that, that if you're disabled, you have less right to medical care or less right to funding for if you want to be able to live out all the days that you have for for yourself. It's really, really important that we have that nuance, because the truth is our dad was disabled for a really long time. And he did feel like a burden. And part of why he felt like a burden is because our society has still not gotten to a place where we know how to actually support and care for and fund the care of disabled people. And so Mm -hmm. they are often in a situation where they do feel like a burden on the people around them. And that should change. And we should have the right to end our lives in the ways that we, when we are terminally ill in the ways that we choose. Uh, I have one more thing to add to that too, which is the method needs to improve. It's also different in every state. So Mm -hmm. in Vermont, you might be crushing hundreds of pills. In California, you've got powder that you can pour into a drink. But as you can see, we did everything to try to make it a good death. And still our father struggled at the end with the bitterness and it was choking him. And it was horrible for us to experience that to the point where we were I can. I think we all agree we were rooting for him to get through it and to die because it was not. It was not comfortable for him. It was very uncomfortable for him. And I think after the amount of times he signed saying "I want to die" and how clear and courageous and I did not edit a thing out in terms of how unwavering he was. You know, there was mm-hmm. never a time where he was like, "Well, I don't know." You know, everyone else was, but he knew what he wanted to do. Why at that point can he not have a as he's a disabled man, you know, like, why does he have to hold a cup and drink it in two minutes? It right. seems to me another hoop to jump through that for a man who whose hand is weak and already has taken, by the way, something that slows his heart and something that slows his lungs. It's like, you know, he's barely conscious. Hopefully this can start a conversation that continues. I'm sure it will. My heart was with him as he was holding and drinking and trying so hard trying so hard to get to that last sip. I just have to say the caregivers, the hospice nurse, these two individuals were angels. Are you still in touch with them? Very much so. They they came to Sundance. They're coming to our openings. They went and surprised mom on Valentine's Day with flowers and roses. Beautiful. And you said your mom, she's doing okay? She's doing okay now? She is. She's, She's on the upswing. She's got a lot to look forward to sharing that with the world. Yeah. And the film, I'm sure, as you said earlier, has just been an incredible, incredible gift. 
just really quick, one of the things about the film is that everybody who watches it falls in love with my dad. And yes. so that's incredibly gratifying yeah. for her, right? Yeah, because he's not here true. anymore. But then now he's got all these fans who love him, and oh, that's yeah. so joyous for her to feel all these people falling in love with her husband. That's beautiful. And just one quick last question for you: What do you want people to take away from Last Flight Home? I want them to take away the idea that life is most centrally about bringing love into the world. Hmm. that a life is not primarily measured about successes as we usually think of them, that success is really about love. Beautiful. Andy? I, I share that sentiment. I think that dad embodies that. I, I feel like the other important thing that people should take away is that the elderly are treasure troves, you know, just behind a white picket fence on a normal suburban street. Therein lay Eli Timoner, and there are so many incredible, wise, wonderful people who are lying there, who you should visit now. You should be in touch with while they're there to share their wisdom with you. You don't have to wait till the last 15 days. And I'm, I'm so excited for you, your family, and I'm excited for the greater world to see this film and to learn about all that love means and, and what love is all about. Thank you for your time today and for sharing your heart and your creative vision and, of course, your, your spirituality always. You're both a gift, and, and I thank you so much for being on the podcast thank today. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank, thank you for you having so us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, really appreciate it. And for the work you do. Rachel's told me about it, and yes. I'm, I'm really happy to support it in, in some small way. But Well, you just have, so thank you so much. <laughs> As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, We'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.